Welcome back to the Wild Side News. And now, Sidney Wildsmith. Next time you're visiting the Metropolitan Museum of Art, or your favorite neighborhood art museum, you may just want to ask yourself, how is it that people throughout history have been able to create such beauty in painting, sculpture, jewelry, silver, and stone? What is it about we humans that motivates people universally to embellish almost everything with decorations and designs? In just a moment, we'll be talking with Dr. Irving Biederman, who has been tracing the perception of beauty into the deepest recesses of the brain. Stay tuned. So now, let's go in-depth as we explore beauty and the brain. I'm an artist and a naturalist, a biologist, and one of the things that drives me to the natural world is the extraordinary beauty. And I've interpreted that in many, many different ways uh, with through uh, drawings and paintings, as well music and other forms, and just the literal sheer joy of going out and being in nature. At some point in my life, though, I began to wonder why it was, because I am a biologist and I love to understand how things work and why things work, that we were drawn to such things. And, it, and once you start that quest and to try to understand why it is that we're attracted to some things, particularly as it relates to the concept of beauty, which certainly is uh, we, we talk comfortably about in terms of art or music, there are many other forms of beauty as well, which we'll be talking about today. I'm very interested and in, in fascinated by talking about this subject because it's something that drives me in almost everything that I do. So I want to welcome to the show, to the Wild Side News today, Dr. Irving Biederman, who is with the Department of Psychology, and he's a professor of uh, neurosciences. Uh, Dr. Biederman at the University of Southern California. Dr. Biederman, welcome to the Wild Side News. Thank you very much. The first question that I'd like to ask you is, what is the question that you're trying to address. Something occurred to you and you wanted to get to the bottom of it, which is part of actually the depth of your quest. The initial observation is that when we look at the world, we're making eye movements in the order of three per second. And these eye movements are decidedly non-random. We don't look at blank walls or random masses that we can't interpret. But instead, we look at only parts of the scene or at uh, some scenes rather than others. So there's an enormous amount of selection that goes on. And we were trying to understand how the brain implements that in real time and also what it was that the brain was trying to maximize. What was it trying to do moment by moment during our waking lives and perhaps even in our dreaming lives? And this holds true not just in a visual world, but in the world of conversation or, in fact, all perceptual experiences. We're highly selective. We don't attend to everything but only some aspects of the environment. So while ultimately we'll come up with a neural basis for understanding perceptual beauty, in fact, the real drive is for information, to obtain new uh, but interpretable information about the world. And so what we needed to find out and we, ne we needed to understand was how could we build in a real-time motivational system that is something that determines what it w will be that you'll look at moment by moment during all our wake waking lives. And this was the quest. Uh, this was our goal. 
Well, in terms of this process of, we'll call it focusing your attention or where you, where you wish to look or, or choose to look, what would you say are some of the, the most critical first considerations in terms of what we're looking for? What we primarily seem to want to get is, is as, as I said before, new but interpretable information. So what we tend to do is shy away from things we already have seen before. So we don't want to read the same book, go to the same movie, or if we're cornered at a party in some banal conversation, we feel desperate to, uh, to leave. Or if we go into a doctor's, let's say, examination room, and we neglected to bring a magazine with us, we wind up counting the holes in the acoustical tile. <laughs> and, but so... Uh, what we'll see is that the brain has implemented a system to try to maximize perceptual and cognitive pleasure. And when this system isn't satisfied, and it's very easy for it not to be satisfied again in those first moments in the examination room, the experience is not one of pain, but of boredom. So the downside of this system is boredom. And we, of course, typically seek to relieve that by getting new new experiences. And the research that we've done uh, has pointed the way to a neural system that implements this. It's a very simple system, but it's one that serves to maximize the rate at which we uh, assimilate new but interpretable information. Uh, that is, it makes us infovores. Yes, I love that term, infovores. Well, that's definitely what, what I am. Um, I, I crave information. And by the way, your discussion of going to a, a waiting room, it's true. You sit down, the first thing you look for is where is the interesting magazine? Right. And then you, you find that there's no magazines that interest you and there's a, a depression. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, yeah. no. What am I going to do? <laughs> that's great. Well, this is an area that fascinates me. And what I'd like to do is just share some of my thoughts on this and then we'll, we'll kind of uh, find where, where we can go from there. This is my take on this. I've been intrigued by beauty. It started out for me when I was uh, start, I started to draw plants, literally a scientific illustration of plants. I was uh, teaching myself how to do this. It was a pen and ink, very uh, you know meticulous drawings. As I was learning, at a certain point, I'd look at the drawings and I'd say, "Why aren't these? Why don't these work?" There was something wrong with them. I was trying to figure out, you know, why. I could, a, straw, a wild strawberry looked like a wild strawberry. A maple leaf looked like a maple leaf, but it didn't look alive. And so as a scientist and now a, an emerging artist, I began to ask the question, what's wrong? And what I ultimately came up with was that the difference between my drawings that didn't work and the drawings that would work is the fact that they weren't beautiful enough. This led to a quest. Uh, I would take a, a, a loop and look at the drawings, the lines, and I came to understand that, for example, in my drawings, the edges of the line weren't perfectly beautiful curves, which they are in nature. Nature in its, in its forms are exquisitely uh, done, rendered. The, the edges and the curves of, of a living, healthy, young, uh, vibrant, li any living thing is filled with literally beautiful curves. And I found that if, as soon as I began to render those uh, curves properly, they they absolutely came alive. But then I, then that would raise the question from a scientific perspective. But why is it that I can perceive this? Why is it that we? How is it that we can perceive this concept of beauty? So uh, interestingly enough, your research and some of my thoughts begin to coalesce. And this is the bottom line, and that is that I ultimately came to the belief that we literally have a sense of beauty. Just as we have a sense of taste or smell or touch, we also have a sense of beauty. That is that when we perceive something beautiful, we feel it. 
my observation is that when we perceive beauty, there is a human reaction, which is an intaking of breath. <gasps> That's what we do. It's a literal reaction. The ancients seem to understand this in the sense that they integrated it into their languaging as they talked about uh, when we say something was so beautiful, it took my breath away. Right. The word awesome really perhaps comes from awe, which is how you would spell or say the intaking of breath. What you're doing now is taking what I'm, I love to think about and really starting to analyze how that works, how it is that the brain takes this. The, you're defining what I call my, the sense of beauty. I, I think that's a fair thing to, to, to say. The, the problem or the potential problem with saying that we have a sense of beauty or that beauty is because we, or that we feel it because we have a sense of beauty is there is the, a potentiality of circularity. That is, you uh, just say there's a sense of beauty and, and that that's driven by certain stimuli. And the question is, can we reduce that further? And I think we might be able to. So mm -hmm. let me, if I can, and, and at, at the in the risk of, of some complexity, just describe what is a very simple system in the brain. And we'll just look at the visual beauty, but we can have the same uh, lovely feelings when we hear a nice turn of phrase or read a good novel yes. or have a good conversation. And Correct. So, so let me uh, stick with, with vision because we know the most about that. It turns out about half the human brain is devoted to vision. It's the highest of any animal that we know of. It turns out there's a, a number of different visual systems. Some are involved with how we reach or motorically interact with objects. But there's a major pathway it's at the base of the brain, starting in the occipital cortex at the back of the brain, which is often called the visual cortex. And it extends, it runs along the base of the brain to the temporal lobe, where it makes contact, this pathway. It's a series of stages about four or five stages, where this contact is made of the visual information that's coming in, that's being painted on your retina, to memory so that we're able to interpret what we see. So the retina, of course, that's a photon patch, just little particles of light. And then initially when it gets sent to the cortex, you have cells with very small receptor fields that respond to only a tiny part of the visual field, and they just respond the difference between, I'm oversimplifying, but the difference mm -hmm. between light and dark mm -hmm. at a given orientation and size. But then as these series of stages proceed uh, further, we reach a stage where we know what it is we're looking at, and it's at this stage that where consciousness, where visual consciousness starts. Until that point, we have no conscious awareness of what the stimulus is. So if something's on your retina and you cut off the retina from the rest of the brain, of course, you wouldn't understand it. Sort of like the, the first point of recognition. Exactly, where you understand something. And it, uh, so it, at this region here is where you start doing an interpretation where you know that something's a kitchen or, or the Grand Canyon or the Eiffel Tower or your friend's face, and so on. Though it doesn't have to be a familiar scene. It could be an abstract sculpture, but you'll know that it's a, it's a sculpture that you've never seen before, mm -hmm. some city street that you've never seen before. And, well, it turns out, in this series of stages, let's say it's about five or six stages, there is a gradient, and this was the great discovery and, and, and an enormous surprise, there's a gradient of opioid receptors. And where there's receptors, there's very likely opioids. These are these natural brain chemicals that are produced you know, in the brain. That, uh, and essentially, when uh, we take opium or cocaine, we're uh, activating these receptors. 
Well, these receptors are very sparse at the first stages, that is, in, in the first cortical stage, but they get more and more dense as we uh, proceed forward uh, in the brain to the areas where we have make contact with memory. And there's a region called the parahippocampal gyrus that's really loaded with these receptors. So if we could stimulate that region, which is where perceptual information contacts our memory, our knowledge, or our lifetimes of diaries, then we get this burst of opioid activity, which is associated with pleasure. So now once we have a given experience, once we see a picture or see a movie or, or so on, then there's another process that gets set in. It turns out that as you repeat the same pattern, uh, there gets to be less and less neural activity in response to that pattern. And this seems quite counterintuitive because one is learning the pattern better, but there's less neural activity. One might think it would be the opposite. What actually happens is a few of the cells that were initially strongly activated by the pattern are most strongly activated. They wind up coding that pattern extremely efficiently and wind up inhibiting the billions of other cells that are only weakly or moderately activated by that pattern. So the net effect is that when you repeat an experience, you get less of this opioid activity and it becomes boring. So having that same conversation again or seeing the same scene or when you call up your friend and say, let's go to the movies this weekend and you suggest a movie and she says, I've seen that, you take that as an opinion that you prefer something new because she's already, because she knows that the second time through, there won't be as much, she doesn't know it this way, that there'll be as much opioid activity, and for $10, she wants to get as much opioid hits as she possibly can. Practical example of that for me that I've experienced is, Coming into, let's say, a new town, I love to travel. I think that maybe that's possible might, might explain why we love to travel. As I've moved to a new town, the first time I go through, I'm just looking at everything, and I'm thrilled, and everything looks so exciting. Uh, one year later, oh, my gosh. Right. Why am I here? Yeah, or you're, you're on cruise control. You don't even know you're That's exactly you're correct. Exactly. Right, exactly right. So, yeah. so, in fact, this is a very efficient system for the brain to divvy up its neural resources. So it, it, it allocates the absolute minimum needed to code an experience. So the n neurons that are inhibited by, by, by the, that pattern are now freed up to code up new experiences. And, and so we never use up all the neural connectivity we have in our brain. So one of the things that happens is that if we can get a lot of interpretation in the scene, like sitting in an outdoor cafe in Paris or looking at some vista, let's say the shoreline, where we see different patterns of the waves or animals going in and out of the water or people and so on, then we're getting this, this activity, and that would be pleasurable. Now, you can get some opioid activity from earlier stages. So people in general prefer color to black and white. It's more, more pleasurable. Or if you, watch, if you look at something in stereo, you get more neural activity than if it's a monaural. When you were children, one had these viewmasters, say. And if you look at the scenes just with one eye or without the stereo effect, you don't get, you realize you don't get much more information than when you're looking at it in stereo. It turns out the stereo experience will give you more opioid activity, so we find that pleasurable. And I suspect, and this is just a conjecture, mm -hmm. that with your artistic line, that those curves may be doing something of that sort. That is, in the earlier stages, you're conveying information 
that somehow is giving you more opioid activity, and you're finding that then to be more pleasurable or you have the sense of beauty. We love to have thoughts that we understand. Oh, and, and, the, and it's exquisitely boring not to understand them. One of the aspects of this is the fact that we we have a craving to learn new things, and that in this process, while we're looking through that information, it's not that it isn't pleasurable and it's not painful, but we're just not feeling that, that moment where something comes together somewhere in our brain where we have that realization. Uh, indeed, not all the time do we get that great you know, flood of just feeling a beauty or, oh, wow. That, uh-huh. That's for sure. That's right. Uh, oh, now I understand. It feels so great. Like when you study a difficult theorem yes. in mathematics, and suddenly it clicks together, and that feels so delicious. Not all the time we get that, but on the other hand, let's say we walk into a new room. I'll give first the extreme case. Through one window is a brick wall, and through the other window is this vista of the, of the shoreline beach and, and everything. Well, of course we're going to look at the, at the vista. But now you can imagine uh, two windows, and one's just, you know, a little bit more is happening in one than the other. Let's say one could be an alleyway with not much there, and the other is, is, a, is a busy street. Well, we'll look out at the busy street. Mm-hmm. So even though there might not be a great, you know, uh, feeling of, of beauty and awe, as you, you put it, in the case when we're looking at the street, there's still more information there. And uh, I believe that this system, though it gives us the feeling of beauty and of pleasure is really designed to get us information. Much of the information that we accumulate in looking out at the world, we may never use. Because we don't live in the here and now, but in a very uncertain future, just acquiring information can be of use. And an example I used is that 30,000 years ago, you're at your cave mouth somewhere in the Serengeti, and you happen to idly look out, you see Zog and Wog are good friends, are being buddy-buddy. A week later, you get into a fight with Zog, and now you know you have to be careful of Wog because he's Zog's buddy. And that little piece of information, which might have been you know, relatively useless at the time, suddenly becomes significant. And indeed, much of the information that gives us competence in life, we pick up inadvertently. So again, you could have been in your cave and you notice where an axe was. Someone had left an axe. And then later on, you need the axe, you know where to get it. And so what we evolve then is a system of desire, a desire for new but interpretable information. But that's giving us this uh, a competence in handling our world. And it also uh, gives us greater sexual, and in the Darwinian sense of, of uh, sexual selection, it makes us more attractive. All over the world, in every culture that's been studied, intelligence is valued in the potential mate. And the surest sign of intelligence, it's universal, is having lots of information. So when Jay Leno asks, in his jaywalking segment in late night TV, asks, let's say, a, a very fashionable-looking individual in the Melrose area of Los Angeles, what are the countries that border the U.S.? And this person, this actually happened, uh, thought a while and said, France? <laughs> and uh, if you ask me, women would think such a, a guy becomes decidedly unattractive as soon as he says that. And just the other week, another one was he was asking something about the lowest point in the continental U.S., which, of course, is that valley. And he asked, uh, again, one of these people that he, he 
stopped on the street, and the person, and, and, and Leno asked him, do you know what that would be, the lowest point in the U.S., and the person said, Australia? <laughs> and not a clue about, you know, or geography is, uh, I guess, one of the domains where people are readily tripped up. But people seem less attractive when they're ignorant. The interesting thing from my perspective is how did these systems come about? I'm a fairly strict biologist in the sense that I believe in natural selection and that when these particular parameters exist in our in our matrix of behaviors and, and how we function, at, even at the uh, neural levels, that these particular things have been selected for. That's the only explanation for it. Of course. That, these, yes. that there was some sort of survival advantage to having these features, which directly relates to what you just said. Well, well think of it this way. Let's take that room with the brick wall and the vista. Let's say someone walks in, and is just as as readily would look at the brick wall or the vista. Those genes aren't with us anymore. <laughs> In other words, if you went through life not acquiring information or not having a drive to maximize the information that you did acquire, you're at a disadvantage. And by the way, this system is present in monkeys. In fact, it was discovered in monkeys. And monkeys will work, will do work pressing a lever. So they, uh, a window can open up, they're in a, a closed cage, so they can have 10 seconds of looking out in the laboratory mm. to see what people are doing. Mm. In the same way that we want a window in a room where we can look out at the world. So, uh, again, the monkey's trying to acquire information, and even though the information will rarely be of direct value, you still have this uh, drive, this desire to get information. And the feeling we have of beauty and of pleasure uh, from this is, in fact, what you evolve. You evolve uh, feelings of pleasure that where you get pleasure in the right places, and in this case, getting pleasure from information. For me, it suggests that people who had this sense, I, that's why I refer to it as a sense of beauty, by looking or hearing or listening beautiful music, or a, a particularly beautiful uh, vista. Most of those forms, whether it's music or art or other forms or even thoughts, the beauty of them comes in the fact that they offer a what I would call a, a, a beautiful balance of the dynamics. In a, in a painting, for example, if a painting doesn't have a balance, it's going to be irritating. If a piece of music is disharmonious, it, uh, it, we're, we're troubled by it, uh, the, the minor chords, for example, and that there's a, a literal cumulative power that happens when we find this balance. It's interesting that a preference for minor chord or you know, uh, some dissonance, yes. either in music or in art, might be preferred to, uh, by individuals who are completely, let's say, saturated or adapted to the standard forms. So the preference for, let's say, uh, abstract expressionalism was first experienced by artists who are completely immersed in representational art and were quite competent at it, but wanted something new. And the same could be said about some composers. Uh, though whether there's a different beastie in the head for, uh, for artists is, is another matter. Uh, but w one's guess, guess is that they're showing the same adaptation that, that we would. So uh, let's say you've read... Take a scientist like myself, uh, very familiar uh, with a given area of science. Uh, if I read a study that's been done, you know, before, it's no pleasure reading it. For someone who didn't know it, it's a, it might be of great, uh, a great interest. And so that may hold true 
in art, that is, people are always trying to get, again, new but interpretable experiences, and this may be why those who are immersed in the art world often prefer forms that people naive to that form, to that art, might not enjoy, and that they might prefer the more traditional or classical forms. Well, for example, in art, beauty happens when there's a balance, but symmetry is boring. In other words, that just becomes a graphic design. Uh, however, we're attracted to it. A circle, a perfect circle, is pro- probably one of the things we're most attracted to artistically. I've always been fascinated by the fact that humans have an innate <laughs> sense of beauty in the sense that going way back, going way back to the cavemen that you were talking about. What were the names again? Do you, do you recall? <laughs> Zog and Wog. Yeah, thank you very much. Well, Zog is sitting there, and he has a, a piece of bone that he goes out, and he's prepared to hit uh, some mastodon with, and he's sitting around, and he's bored, and the next thing you know, he's carving something into it. And when you look at the earliest forms of expression in art, they're not just random, ugly forms. Oh, absolutely. You're absolutely correct. And, and this relates to something else that we are interested in, is this artistic motivation. If you look at the uh, cave paintings, let's say in Lascaux, done 17,000 years ago, uh, they were actually, uh, I used to think they were just like graffiti, but they were major pro- projects. They were deep in the caves, maybe a quarter to a half a kilometer in. They were high up because the bottom of the caves was damp. They were painted often, oh, 10 meters, 5, 10 meters up, so they had to build scaffolding. Hmm. They're all of large animals, and it's unlikely that they brought the animals in rather than eating them fresh. But it was it was a major production, and yet they were willing to undergo it to do the art. So there's something in the brain of the artist or composer, let's say, that that wants to do art, wants to paint or draw or or compose music. From my perspective, I believe it's a means of being able to create our own pleasure. I mean, it may, there's no question that there is that there's the pleasure. In fact, we've recently done a study. It's a very simple question that everyone's asked. Would you rather be blind or deaf? Uh, and everyone's kind of thought about it or opposed it. It turns out that uh, most people say they'd rather be deaf. They wouldn't want to lose vision. But about 25% of the people say they'd rather be blind. And if you ask them why, which is what we did, we had this, this questionnaire, the main reason is they said they can't imagine living without music. Whereas people who said they'd prefer being deaf, that is, to retain vision, are described in terms of practical reasons of, of navigation, recognizing the visual world. Uh, people who said they'd rather be blind, it wasn't because uh, they would lose conversation. It was it was music, and specifically making music, playing or producing music. Mm. The people who prefer blind and deaf didn't differ in the amount of music they listened to in an average week. It was just that people did not want to forego, those who said they'd rather be blind, did not want to forego the experience of producing music. I do music, and I like to create uh, all forms of music. And I will say this, that when it's happening, when you're in the groove or whatever that is, whatever that form is, okay, um, it feels wonderful. Right. It literally feels wonderful. And there are some people who say they can't imagine. And number, again, it was a minority, but be sh- to be sure who said they can't imagine living without music. There's also something else about the power of, of, of music the most banal lyrics, uh, mm. like, we don't need no education. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> done by Pink Floyd. This extraordinary power. Yes. And if you were to read those words on a page, uh-huh. it would be a joke. Yeah. Okay. Any insight into that? No, we don't. It's one mm-hmm. of the things we, we've uh, mulled over about uh, music, and there's no question that it, it's uh, you know releasing these opioids. Uh, uh-huh. And in fact, there's been a direct study on that. There's some people who. When they listen to certain musical pieces, they get chills and some cry. They mm. just feel overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. But if you give them this uh, drug called naloxone, which inhibits these opioid receptors, then they say they hear the music just fine. They just don't have an emotional response anymore to it. That's very interesting. So the opiates are... are They're involved in music, too, it seems. Mm-hmm. And as well, this concept of emotional uh, content uh, associated with the uh, with the events. Correct. The, the chills or the, the crying, you know, that... Uh, the And the people will describe it as the chills. You mm-hmm. know, just, I'm sure you felt that, too, to certain pieces. Uh, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Here's an interesting dynamic of this. Music is just pulls puts you to sleep. However, what people seem to want in music is a, a beautiful form, okay, some sort of form, let's put it that way, that repeats. We love that. It's almost like a rhythm. We like rhythms. We like things that repeat. But if that goes on endlessly, then it becomes boring. And then what happens with the, the music that gives you that moment that, where you just have that the, the, the release of those opiates is when you've perhaps taken that re- repeating form and you've stretched it out a bit, and now you're you're moving off into a different dimension, and then you come back to that that theme, that that central theme. And I'm telling you, you know, the, I, as I talk about it, I can feel it. To me, there's a magic in the resonance. That the central to this is some sort of resonance within the within the brain, some sort of where, where there is a, a coming together energetics that gives us a, a heightened power. And in this particular case, particularly with the opiates that that are released at that point, that really feels good. Right for us. Seeing that neural or that potential neural substrate at least gives us the potential now to start explaining this extraordinary range of phenomena that I think before was just sweet mystery. In your research, did you find any sort of quasi-universals that seem to resonate with a, a vast spectrum of people in terms of uh, what really motivated them to... Uh... Yeah, there were three things about scenes which you can get from an evolutionary perspective. Mm-hmm. So what we did is in one study, people were doing fMRI, and mm. we looked at what scene, scenes that they preferred or didn't prefer. And there were four factors explained. Much of the variance about which scenes people preferred versus didn't. One was Vista, being able to see a lot versus a close-up. Uh, another one was having that the scene would have some what uh, has been called mystery, that there's something potentially new could happen, something different. Often water or the seashore the, the, or lakeshore is like that, because things happen along the shore, mm-hmm. not in the middle of the ocean. Mm-hmm. Uh, a third one is what uh, evolutionary psychologists have called refuge. So there should be a place in this scene where you could see a lot and a lot could happen, but you yourself could be hidden. So you can imagine the value of this if you're uh, on the Serengeti, again, going back there 30,000 years ago, where do you make your campsite or establish a visit, your, your village? You want it to be in a place where you could see a lot, so that game or enemies or women or what have you coming by and you can determine that. And second, uh, you, you want a place where something could happen. And third, you want uh, to be... I have the possibility of you seeing a lot, but you yourself not being seen. That is a good hiding place. Mm-hmm. And a fourth dimension was nature, 
So people prefer nature and, of course, everything that it affords by way of food and water and things like that to artificial environment. Those four factors could account for 62% of the variance of people's ratings of the how much they like looking at a given scene. Another thing that I read about, and you probably have read the deep literature on this, and that is that well, historically people talk about the mystics going to the high points. And someone did some research to suggest, and I can understand that this would make sense, that when a person goes to a very high point, the brain actually moves into a different realm. It's working in a grandiose uh, scheme, and therefore the brain starts to function in a different process. I, I don't know that one needs to say all that. Mm-hmm. It may be you're just in a position mm-hmm. to acquire more information and that feels good. I do know that when I watch people who are trying to find an answer to something, I always find it fascinating how so often there'll be sort of two basic reactions. One is that they'll look up and they're looking for that universal. And when they can't find that, then their head goes down, and they're looking for the specific to come up with the answer. <laughs> you know? yeah. So it, I think there may be some indication that there could be a, a shifting of, of the brain processes. In terms of your research, where does this teach you about, about this process and, and, and life, and what can we learn from this? I think what we have learned, or at least have the beginnings of uh, a theory about uh, what we do with probably 99% of our lives when uh, we're in a non-subsistence existence. That is, when we're not immediately concerned about starving to death or someone trying to harm us physically and so on. The question is, what do we do with the rest of our lives? And the thought is that we're satisfying this other drive or motive, uh, which is to acquire new but interpretable information. And it, it gives us pleasure, and not to do it gives us boredom. I think we are always doing that. That is, we're always uh, serving this master. Uh, the beauty of it is it's never satisfied. So you can never be sated on information. You never... So having assimilated some information, you want to get something new. Been there, done that. So it, what's interesting about this system it's what's called a win-shift system. That is, you get a reward, you've won, but now you want to get something else. You don't repeat what's been reinforced, but you want to get something new, and that's the system. Actually, your research, you, you work with MRIs, and you're doing extraordinary levels of research. For people who want to go much deeper into this on a, on a much more scientific level, where might they be able to uh, get some information? Well, probably the most accessible paper is one we recently published, I think it was in the April issue of American Scientist 2006, and it's called Perceptual Pleasure in the Brain. Uh, it's by myself and a former graduate student, Edward Vessel. And I think this would give them a nice introduction, a nice perspective on this problem. It's this a domain. It, it's, it's elegant research. And I'm fascinated by the way in which you really delineate this process of a sort of concentration of information into a sort of a resonant form in the, in the opiate centers, opiate receptor centers of the brain. It's fascinating research. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. We've been talking with Dr. Irving Biederman, who is with the Department of Psychology at the University of Southern California. He's a professor of neurosciences there. Dr. Biederman, thanks so much for lending your voice here on the Wild Side News. Thank you very much. As I've gone through life on this earth, first as a scientist and then as a naturalist, I became an artist on a scientific quest to unlock the secrets of beauty, which I like to think of as the breath of the divine. You'll be hearing more about beauty in the months and years ahead. I believe that we may just have more than enough technology on the earth. I believe that art, 
art based on beauty, is the technology of the future. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. This is Sidney Wildsmith saying adios until we meet again next Tuesday or anytime on the archives when your voice of the earth whispers in wonder here on the Wild Side News. <laughs>